Turn with me to Isaiah 24, and we'll be there twice tonight, two different times. While you're finding Isaiah 24, I'm just going to pray for us for a moment. Our Father, we come to you now so thankful for the clarity of your word, so thankful for the detail that we think on and that we sing of, so that we're not left wondering what happens at the end of our lives. We're certainly not left wondering what happens at the end of this age. We have the truth. And so, Father, we pray that your words this evening would enliven our hearts and would thrill us to desire to hasten that day, to bring that day as quickly as you would have it. I pray, Lord, that you would thrill our hearts with what is yet to come so that we may live in peace and in tranquility and in joy in the present moment, that our knowledge of the future would inform this day and each day that we live. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. In the final years that you could say we're still sort of in the Reformation, the final years of the Reformation, Professor Joseph Mead, who lived from 1586 to 1638 or 9, depending on who you read, he was among the great men of God who strongly supported the resurgence of the biblical gospel. Right at the end of the Reformation, he was a well-known Bible scholar, but a brilliant man as well. He was a naturalist, what we would say a, a, a botanist or a scientist of some sort. He was also an expert Egyptologist. He loved the study of Egypt. He was thoroughly versed in biblical languages, and he served as a lecturer at Christ College of the University of Cambridge in England. And in his era, during this time kind of near the end of the, of the Reformation, nearly every influential Bible scholar followed in the footsteps of the majority of reformers and holding to an amillennial viewpoint that there is no intermediate kingdom and that the church represents or replaces Israel at one level or another. This was the overwhelming theological atmosphere that Mead was immersed in. He was fascinated by the study of the end times, and like many well-meaning Bible scholars throughout history, he even looked at world events around him and attempted to set dates for the end of this age. He believed that this current age would end in either 1654 or 1716, and thankfully for all of us, he was way off, and we're glad for that. But he made one very important contribution, which still reverberates in our own church even today, and it reverberates even in the message I'm preaching tonight. And I'll come back to that in a bit and explain what Professor Mead did. Now, last Lord's Day evening, we began our next series of messages in the overall Millennium series. And as I mentioned in the opening message of this particular series, we're, we're ascending the mountaintop of the Millennium, and that takes a lot of foundational work. And by the time we get to digging down into the particulars of, your, your, of the Millennium, your understanding will be second nature. And that's if you commit to hearing all these messages and we're taking our time here. My goal is to preach as long as it takes for Christ to return on the topic, and maybe we'll time it out just about right. But this short series, I, I've front-loaded this up near the front because it's, it's a little bit more challenging to get through, but it's just called Alternate Views. And it's important for you to have the theological lay of the land so that you can be confident in the coming kingdom of Christ on earth. Now, last time, to introduce this little short series, we looked at the views of preterism the belief that all bible prophecy has already been fulfilled and we've seen that that really is a heretical view it's not just a difference of opinion it's a view that just destroys the gospel we looked at post-millennialism the belief that the church and the gospel will slowly overcome the world and eventually the world will be christianized and fully prepared for the return of christ and we looked at amillennialism the belief that there is no kingdom with christ physically reigning on the earth that the kingdom is now, Christ is reigning in heaven, the kingdom has begun. The last three messages in this mini-series, Alternate Views, beginning tonight, they'll all focus on amillennialism, because that's the prevalent view in our day. And tonight, I'm simply entitled our time together, Answering Amillennialism. Answering Amillennialism, and, and I suppose it's fair for you to ask the question, okay, but 
How does this help me in my daily life? And I understand that question, but one little reminder, our culture has taught us to be consumers. Our culture has taught us to want instant benefits without effort, without laying a foundation. But just the opposite of that, rather than trying to be instant consumers, we follow Scripture, which really ties our understanding of the end times to our daily living in very direct ways. It's, they're not disjointed from each other. And at the end of our time this evening, I'm going to show you four immediate right now today ways that God calls us to apply what we know about the coming into the age. It applies today. And so to organize our thoughts tonight to answer amillennialism, I'm going to give you two of the major claims of amillennial theology. And then for the first one, I'm going to give you one extended answer. And for the second one, I'm going to give you five shorter answers. So there will be claim number one, one long answer, claim number two with five shorter answers. And then we'll shepherd our hearts in the word to see four ways that God calls us to apply our knowledge of the coming end of this age. So here's the first claim of amillennialism. Christ is reigning from heaven now, and the kingdom is now spiritually. Christ is reigning from heaven now, and the kingdom is now spiritually. Here's one long answer. Your answer to that is that the kingdom of God on earth is preceded by a very specific order of events. The kingdom of God on earth is preceded by, comes before, with a very specific order of events. And I want to walk you through a little over a decade ago, one of my mentors in the faith, Dr. Michael Vlock, he provided really an outstanding analysis of this order of events. And I want to walk you through the most relevant scriptures to understand this dynamic. And I think it will be made clear. And we're looking at Isaiah 24. Now, just to give you a little bit of context, Isaiah 24 through 27 is actually sometimes called the apocalypse of Isaiah, the, the book of Revelation of Isaiah, so to speak, because it so clearly contains prophecies of the end of the age. So let's look at this dynamic. Isaiah 24, verse 1. Behold, Yahweh empties the earth to destruction, eviscerates it, distorts its surface, and scatters its inhabitants. This is clearly worldwide cataclysm. Empties the earth to destruction. This means that those who are alive are being killed left and right. He eviscerates it. It's the idea of gutting something. He distorts its surface. Other places in Scripture, both Old and New Testament, tells us that valleys will be brought up and mountains will be brought down, distorting the surface of the earth and scatters its inhabitants. When 100-pound hailstones are coming towards you, you run, you scatter. This is a worldwide cataclysm. This is language of the totality of God's power terrorizing the earth. We could label this tribulation. We'll use Jesus' term for this time. Matthew 24, 21, he calls it tribulation. This is a time characterized by the righteous justice of God pouring out difficulties on the earth. Verse 20, or chapter 24, verse 5, rather. Verse 5, the earth is also polluted by its inhabitants, for they trespassed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and those who inhabit it are held guilty. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned and few men remain. Not only are the people being judged, but the physical earth itself is suffering. Down in verse 19, the earth is broken asunder. The earth is split through. The earth is shaken violently. The earth totters or reels to and fro like a drunkard rather, and it totters like a shack and its transgression is very is heavy upon it. Verses 21 through 23 speak of a general judgment on all wickedness. And during that time, even the sun and moon will be humiliated, ashamed to show themselves. Speaking of the darkening of the sun during this time, we can label this portion judgment. So you have tribulation, then judgment. But then a new era begins. Isaiah 25, verse 6. And Yahweh of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. 
And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time, and Lord Yahweh will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for Yahweh has spoken. So we could label this kingdom. So what's the pattern? Tribulation, judgment, kingdom. That's the order of events. Turn to Daniel chapter 12, a few pages ahead in your Bible. Daniel chapter 12 is the final chapter in Daniel. Are we going to see a similar pattern? Daniel chapter 12. Daniel 12 verse 1. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will stand. And there will be a time of distress such as never happened since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. This is speaking, it's very specific, a time of distress such as never happened since there was a nation until that time. This can only be speaking of one event as it's the worst time in the history of the Jews. By the way, this is proof that Israel's distress spoken of here was not A.D. 70, the destruction of Jerusalem, as we talked about last time. It can't be this, because was there an event in the history of the Jews worse than A.D. 70? Yes, the 1940s, the Holocaust. One-third of all the Jews on earth wiped out. So we, we can't have A.D. 70 being that time. Thus, this is only one option, tribulation. Daniel 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to reproach and everlasting contempt. This is a resurrection in which some are raised to everlasting life, but for others they're raised to judgment. And so that's judgment. And in verse 3, And those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now there's suddenly peace and relief and joy. What is that? That's kingdom. What's the pattern? Tribulation, judgment, kingdom. Turn to Zechariah 14, right near the end of the Old Testament. I told you a few messages ago we would be in Zechariah 14 a lot, so your Bible will soon start just falling open to it. Zechariah 14 Second to last book of the Old Testament. Zechariah 14, verse 1. Behold, the day is coming for Yahweh when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. Indeed, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city will go forth in exile. But those left of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then Yahweh will go forth and fight against those nations as the day when he fights on a day of battle. What is this? This is tribulation. Christ returns. He's rescuing Israel in verse 4, accompanied by cosmic heavenly signs in verses 6 and 7. Verse 12 describes what Christ does when he arrives. Verse 12, Now this will be the plague with which Yahweh will plague all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet, and their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongue will rot in their mouth. And it will be in that day that abundant confusion from Yahweh will fall on them. And they will take hold of one another's hand. And the hand of one will go up against the hand of another. What is this? This is judgment. And as the literary centerpiece, the the pinnacle, the high point of the whole chapter, verse 9 describes the final result. Verse 9, And Yahweh will be king over all the earth. In that day, Yahweh will be the only one. And his name won. What is that? That is kingdom. Tribulation, judgment, kingdom. Turn to Matthew 24. Entering into the New Testament, but just a few pages forward. This is Jesus' most extensive sermon on the end times. The Olivet Discourse given on the Mount of Olives. Interestingly, He preaches this sermon on the very place that he will return to, according to Zechariah 14. I think there's a beautiful irony in that. Matthew 24, verse 4. 
See to it that no one deceives you, Jesus says. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you are going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. Then new believers in Christ and and Jews are hated by the nations. Verse 9, there's betrayal and hatred on the earth. Verse 10, false prophets are everywhere now. Verse 11, there's lawlessness and lovelessness on the earth. Verse 12, the abomination of desolation, Antichrist, insisting on being worshipped. Verse 15, there's horrifying persecution. Verses 16 through 20. And what does Jesus call this time? Verse 21, for then there will be a great, what? Tribulation. Christ returns in full view of the world, accompanied by cosmic signs. Chapter 24, verse 29, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. What happens now? Skip ahead to chapter 25, verse 31. Chapter 25, verse 31 picks up the story, but when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on the left. What do we call this? Judgment. And having separated surviving believers from surviving unbelievers, what happens now? Verse 34, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And I want you to notice this. For all those who say that the kingdom is happening now, Jesus says it's not until his return that he says, Inherit the kingdom Enter the kingdom. Receive the kingdom. They're kingdom citizens already, but the kingdom has not yet come. Why? Because the king has not yet come. He has not put all his enemies under his feet. So what's the order in Matthew 24 and 25? Tribulation, judgment, kingdom. Turn to Luke 21. Luke 21, just to kind of nail one part of this down. Luke 21, 25, this is Luke's account of the Olivet Discourse, the same sermon in Matthew 24 and 25, the the parts of it that Luke chose to include. Luke 21, 25, and there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth anguish among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Who is he speaking to here? Ultimately, he's speaking to tribulation saints yet to be saved who will read this and understand. But I want you to notice something that's very important. It's a huge challenge to the notion That the kingdom is now. Verse 29. Then he told them a parable. Behold the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they put forth leaves and you see it for yourselves, know that summer is now near. So Jesus from his own environment gives a short story, a parable. A word picture to illustrate that just like they knew what was going to happen with the fig tree... So you should, when you see the signs that he just described, know that something else is now going to commence. Something is going to begin. Something is going to be inaugurated. It's the start of something. What is that something? Verse 31. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is what? Near. This breaks the back of the kingdom now argument. Jesus is saying to future believers, specifically the tribulation saints, 
that when you see these things, the kingdom of God is near. He's literally saying, look up. You might see me coming any moment. Not the kingdom is happening now during the church age or before the tribulation. He says the kingdom is near. So how do you answer the claim that Christ is reigning from heaven now? The kingdom is now spiritually tribulation, judgment, kingdom. That's the clear, consistent pattern of the coming of the messianic kingdom. There's a second claim that our amillennial brothers and sisters will make. And that is that there are only two ages. There are only two eras. And they call them this age and the age to come. Now, if you're saying that sounds like the Bible, you're correct. They would say then that there can't be an intermediate kingdom of some sort. That there's only this age and the age to come. This is actually a pretty strong argument. And I want to represent disagreement accurately. So let me go into it a little bit for a moment. Let me outline the first, uh, first of all, three ways amillennialists try to disprove a literal kingdom of Christ on earth. Sticking to the this age and age to come. They use what some would call the immediacy argument. The immediacy argument says that because the age to come, as listed, for example, in Matthew 12 or Ephesians 1, follows this present age immediately, there's no place, there's no allowance for an intermediate time in between. It's immediate. It goes from one to the next. Another one we could call the qualities argument, that the qualities of the age to come are eternal. They're final in nature. Mark 10.30, Luke 18.30, Luke chapter 20 describes some of these qualities. And what that means is that qualities included in a, in a so-called intermediate kingdom, such as sin and death, procreation, the discipline of rebellious nations, those don't fit into an eternal nature of an age to come. They don't fit. So that's the qualities argument. And along with the immediacy argument and the qualities argument, we could identify the chronology argument. The chronology argument. And this is me trying to represent their viewpoint accurately. They would say that the second coming of Christ is the dividing line. That is the epic event between the two ages. That Christ's second coming is concurrent with everything else happening to begin the next age. The resurrection and judgment of humanity. The destruction and remaking of the creation It's concurrent with the final triumph over death and sin that causes death. And because all of that happens at once, there's no place in that chronology to put an intermediate kingdom of any kind. So how do we answer this? It's a very strong argument. Because they are correct about the terminology. Matthew 12, 32. Jesus said, Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit... It shall not be forgiven him either in this age or the age to come. How many is that? One, two. Mark 10, 30. Except one who will receive 100 times as much now in the present age, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, and children, farms along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Present age, age to come. One, two. Luke 18, 30. You will not receive many times more at this time and in the age to come eternal life. One, two. Luke 20, 34 and 35. This age and that age. One, two. Ephesians 1, 21. In this age and the one to come. Now, I'm not a mathematician, but I think all of us can figure out all of those references. One, two. That's a pretty strong argument. Well, let me give you five short answers to this claim that there are only two ages. The first one I'll call the two-phase judgment evidence. The two-phase judgment evidence. And for this one, we need to go back again to Isaiah 24. Isaiah 24 shows us the two-phase judgment. There's a little short section right at the end of Isaiah 24 that is absolutely unmistakable in that it foreshadows Revelation 19 and 20. They're they're so parallel. Let me just show you this. Just take a moment. Isaiah 24, verse 21. So it will be in that day that Yahweh, Yahweh will punish the host of heights on high and the kings of the earth on earth. You have the kings of the earth. Verse 22. 
They will be gathered together like prisoners in the pit, will be confined in prison, and after many days they will be punished. You have the kings of the earth and the host of heaven. This is speaking of angels of some sort being imprisoned. Verse 22 also mentions being locked up in a pit, a dungeon of some sort, an abyss. Verse 22, this final punishment, here's the key phrase, happens after many days. Now verse 23, then the moon will be humiliated and the sun ashamed for Yahweh of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and his glory will be before his elders. So what do we have here? Just summarize. You have the kings of the earth, the kings of the earth and the host of heaven imprisoned. They're locked up in the dungeon or a pit. Then there's a final punishment after many days and then the Lord will rule as king. That's the chronology. Now, turn to Revelation chapter 19, all the way at the other end of your Bible. Revelation chapter 19, verse 19. Revelation 19, 19. I'll give you a moment to get there. I know we're going all over the place here. Revelation 19, verse 19. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war with him who sits on the horse and with his army, the kings of the earth who rebel against God. Verse 21, and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sits on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. This is the defeat of the kings of the earth. Chapter 20, verse 1, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss. And a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were finished. After these things, he must be released for a short time. This is the binding of Satan, and we would assume implied the demonic powers with him. The demonic powers aren't going to be set free while Satan is bound. Chapter 20, verse 7 through verse 15, you have after the thousand years, the release of Satan. And then he's sent to the lake of fire. You have the great white throne judgment for all believers. And then chapter 20, verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no authority, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. What's the pattern? The kings of the earth, kings of the earth and the host of heaven imprisoned, locked up in a dungeon or a pit, final punishment then after many days, and the Lord will rule as king. It's the same. There's an intermediate time after many days in Isaiah 24, after a thousand years in Revelation 20. What does that mean? It means there is a time between those two judgments. How long a time? We happen to know from Revelation 20, 1,000 years. Here's a second answer to this claim that there's only two ages, and I'll call this one the greater than, less than evidence. The greater than, less than evidence. What do I mean by that? What we mean is that the Old Testament describes a messianic age that's greater than our current conditions of this age and less than the conditions of the final state. That there's something in between. Now, for the sake of time, I'm just going to mention some key texts to you. In the New Testament, this intermediate era is clear. It's obvious. And it really begins in Revelation 19.11 with the return of Christ. It continues into Revelation 20 with the binding of Satan, the reign of resurrected saints on the earth, a time of total peace until God releases Satan one last time. There's clearly an intermediate time. But are there Old Testament texts that indicate a messianic age which is greater than our current age but less than the final state? I'll give you some scriptures here. Psalm 72, 1 through 20. Psalm 72, 1 through 20 says that God's king on the earth will be rendering justice and eradicating poverty and affliction. God's king is on the earth but there's still poverty and affliction. That's greater than this age, less than the final state. You have the enemies of the king licking the dust, kneeling before Messiah. Verse 9, he still has enemies on the earth. The kings of the earth are bringing, bringing tribute to the king, and the implication is that it's not always voluntary. 
Verses 12 and 13, he's rescuing the needy. He's lifting up the oppressed. So this is a time described in Psalm 72 where the king will be on the earth and yet because sin is still here, there will be a need for justice, a need for help and he will give all of those things gloriously because the government is on his shoulders. Or consider Isaiah 2, 1 through 4. Isaiah 2, 1 through 4, God's king is on the earth, headquartered in Jerusalem. He'll instruct God's people in how to walk in his ways. He'll render decisions for many peoples in verse 4, meaning there will be disputes to resolve. He'll forbid and stop all wars. He'll basically say, I'm going to put an end to this. You won't try to do it yourselves. Or consider Micah 4, 1 through 4, which is basically just a restatement of Isaiah 2. But it adds a detail that the king will render decisions for mighty distant nations. This is a worldwide rule, not just a local rule. And Micah 4 says that farmlands and vineyards will be safe. It takes years to develop these. And Israel historically has had them taken away. But now a person, quote, will sit under his vine and under his fig tree, That means there's nobody to bother them. Worry-free property ownership, property development. Or consider Isaiah 11, 1 through 9. In Isaiah 11, 1 through 9, Christ, Christ is reigning on the earth in the Holy Spirit's power. He's protecting the poor. He's, he's helping the afflicted. There will be babies. There will be toddlers on the earth. Marriage and procreation is happening by non-glorified descendants of the great tribulation survivors. That's greater than the current age and less than the coming age. Isaiah 65, 17 through 25, one of our key texts in this topic. There's infants, but no infant death. There are people called youths at age 100. People living hundreds of years and having children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. So what's the difference? In this present age, Psalm 90 says we get 70 to 80 years, maybe. In the millennium, we have highly extended lifespans for the non-glorified, but still sin and death in the world. And in the final state, eternal life and all people in the final state are resurrected, are glorified, no sin, no death. How many ages is that? One, two, three. Or think about Zechariah 8, 4, and 5. The return of the Lord to reign in Jerusalem. There's peace, there's joy, there's also weakness and old age. The passage we looked at earlier in Zechariah 14, verse 9, the Lord is reigning on the earth. Verses 16 through 19, judgments on nations who rebel against Christ. So how do we think about that? In this present age, Messiah is in heaven and no nation submits to him. In the millennium, Messiah is on the earth ruling the nations and he punishes those who rebel. And in the final state, all nations act as they should because they're sinless and there's never a need to punish ever again. How many ages is that? One, two, three. The greater than, less than evidence that there's an age coming greater than this one and less than the eternal state, this is very compelling and it's repeated all over the Old Testament. Let me give you a third answer to this claim that there's only two ages and I'll call this one the original listener evidence. The original listener evidence. In the time of Jesus and the New Testament writers, the terms this age and the age to come had a different connotation than we think of right now. Dr. Matt Waymire writes about this and he does does some great work on this. He writes this. In that time, quote, they were already using existing terminology and thereby appealing to an already well-established eschatological framework. Now, let me interpret that for you for a moment. The Jewish writings of the two centuries before Christ used these exact terms, this age and the age to come, by 100 B.C., a century before Christ, commonly known eschatology, included a distinction between a temporary kingdom on earth, a final state in eternity, and how many kingdoms do you have? A present age, an intermediate kingdom, and an eternal state. Everyone in the Jewish community already believed that. This was the overwhelming belief of the Jews between 100 B.C. and 100 A.D. or so, and Christ is right in the middle of that. In other words, he's using terminology that they already knew to mean three ages, not two. Jesus, the New Testament writers, they use this age and the age to come 
I have to say this. If you deny that there are three ages, you actually are tasked with having to prove that the meaning that the original listeners would have thought has now changed. It hasn't changed. You would have to answer the question, if when Jesus and the New Testament writers use those terms, any listener already understood this to include an intermediate kingdom, why does it now mean only two ages, not three? Jesus used terms, the New Testament writers used terms to people who already believed in three. Here's a fourth answer to this claim that there are only two ages. I didn't know what to name this one, so I just called this the stop downplaying Revelation 20 evidence. The stop downplaying Revelation 20 evidence. This is almost maddening to read readers about, uh, writers about Revelation 20 who are amillennial because they don't know what to do with it. Revelation 20, according to this view, is somehow completely unique. It stands alone. It must mean something other than what it clearly says, even though Revelation 20 is the clearest exposition of the intermediate kingdom because that's the nature of progressive revelation. Revelation 20 harmonizes beautifully with the rest of Scripture. There's no need to look at it as somehow odd, that it needs to be rationalized. It's not hard to understand. Intermediate kingdom, Revelation 20. Final state, Revelation 21, beginning of verse 9. It's not hard to understand. I want to drive this point home because this this is fundamental to how we view our Bibles. Amillennialism holds to a method of interpreting Scripture which says that the New Testament is the grid, the set of glasses that you use to interpret the Old Testament. That in light of New Testament revelation, The promises given to Abraham, the promises given to David, the promises given to Israel are now understood, listen carefully, in different ways than they would have been understood by the original reader. They call that New Testament priority. But all of a sudden you get to Revelation 20 and that goes out the window. In fact, Revelation 20 is generally approached with the presupposition or the assumption that it's difficult, it's obscure, it's unclear, it must be properly interpreted with more clear New Testament passages. One theologian said this is tantamount to importing meaning from other passages into Revelation 20. Now, if you want to get an example of what this view sounds like, amillennial theologian Anthony Hakma, he says this, Since a millennial reign of Christ is taught nowhere else in Scripture, we'll take a deep breath there for a moment, And since the characteristics of this millennium reign conflict with what Scripture teaches elsewhere about the second coming and about the age to come which follows it, remember, they only believe in two ages, nothing in between. Why should we affirm that Revelation 21 through 6 teaches that there will be such a reign? Instead of insisting that Revelation 20 affirms a teaching which is not found elsewhere in the Bible, is it not wiser to interpret these difficult verses In an apocalyptic book, you already catch that flavor. This book is really hard to understand. Let's just be careful here. In light of and in harmony with the rest of the teaching, the clear teachings of the rest of Scripture. Let me put it to you this way. The amillennialist says, the Old Testament must be interpreted in light of the New until you get to Revelation 20 and then you blow that up. So what's the solution? It's actually pretty simple keeping in mind that the original readers of the book of Revelation were all premillennial, and I'll show that to you in later messages, it isn't necessary to say that the New Testament reinterprets the Old Testament or that other New Testament passages are necessary to find the clear meaning of Revelation 20. It's just the opposite. Revelation 20 is the clearest declaration of the millennial kingdom. Six times, a thousand years. What would we expect with the nature of progressive revelation? We would expect that the third to last chapter of the Bible would have the clearest view, wouldn't we? That's an easy explanation. Revelation 20 is just the mountain peak achieved by the many trails through the Old Testament leading to that climactic moment. Let me give you a fifth answer to this claim that there's only two ages I'll call this one the millennium as introduction evidence. The millennium as introduction evidence. 
1 Corinthians 15, 24, it's a text we'll come back to numerous times, says, Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. This speaks of the end of the millennium, when Christ has crushed the final rebellion of Satan. This is necessary to now enter into the final state. This is very consistent with the view of premillennialists that the millennium serves as an introduction to the final state. Yes, it's a long introduction, but this is the God of the universe we're talking about here. The premillennialism that we understand doesn't present the millennium as an end in itself. It's the preparatory work for the final state, the preparatory work of bringing yet more souls into the kingdom, of fulfilling all the promises to Abraham, all the promises to David, all the promises to Israel, of manifesting the glory of Christ on earth as the true king of all the kings and of the final defeat of sin, the defeat of death in order for Christ to present to God the Father a purified holy kingdom as a gift. Here's a little interesting tidbit. An early 20th century amillennial theologian, Gerhardus Voss, he was very clear that there can be, in his view, no intervening gap No intermediate kingdom between the two ages. But Voss wrote that if you hold to a millennium, a premillennial structuring of the end times, the millennium could simply be defined as the beginning or the introduction to the age to come. Welcome to premillennialism, Dr. Voss. That to say this age and the age to come doesn't prove that an intermediate kingdom is impossible. Those two major claims of amillennialism have very logical and sound answers to them. They're really well answered, I believe, and that brings us back to this age. The age to come is fun to think about, but we have to think about this one because this is the one we're in, right? What are the spiritual features of this age? I want to just add this in and mention briefly five features of this present age, and then we're going to get to some sound application to how we wait for the age to come. But let me give you five features of this present age, kind of help you understand where we are right now in redemptive history. The first feature, the great commission to the church. The great commission to the church, Jesus commanded his disciples in the broader sense of of all of his followers to proclaim Christ and Christ's gospel to all the world. Matthew 28. And the central focus, the central feature of the great commission is the church. We are the ones baptizing people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is identifying with God's people, with the church. We're teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded. That's the church's role. Our focus as the church is not to save the world. Our focus is to save people out of the world. We're preparing the lost not for the world. We're preparing them to exit the world. Not trying to improve the world by some other means other than the gospel. Now, to be certain... Every time somebody gets saved, the world is improved. But that's just the residual effect. That's not the goal. It's the second feature of this present age. The relative rarity of salvation. The relative rarity of salvation. And I hope this helps you appreciate your salvation. God does great things in the church age. He has been for 2,000 years. But there are relatively few saved compared to those who are not. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 14, for the gate is, what, narrow, and the way is constricted that leads to life, and there are few who find it. It's the third feature of this age, the increasing wickedness of the world. The increasing wickedness of the world, 2 Timothy 3, 13, says evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. There is no golden age coming before the second coming. Decades ago, John Walvoord made the astute observation. He said, The apostles are notably silent on any program of political, social, moral, or physical improvements of the unsaved world. Paul made no effort to correct social abuses or to influence the political government for good. Why? Because Scripture and Christ teach increasing wickedness of the world. It's a fourth feature a distinctive group of New Covenant believers. We are a distinctive group of New Covenant believers. This group of believers has been nicknamed by Paul the body of Christ. 
Most commonly, we call ourselves the church. We're not a revamped Judaism. We're not a replacement of Israel. We're a distinct group. We're distinct from Israel. We're made up of both Jew and Gentile as co-equals without respect to ethnicity, national affiliations. Those things are irrelevant to the church. We're labeled as new covenant believers by virtue of being the very first Holy Spirit indwelt group in all of history. And the role and function of the church is to fulfill Colossians 1.28, to proclaim Christ and urge and warn toward mature obedience to Christ. And one more feature of this present age, the giving of men of God to lead the church. The giving of men of God to lead the church from Ephesians 4, which explains that Christ gave gifts of men to the church to shepherd, to teach, to lead. These men of God have a similar function to the Old Testament prophets, but with a completed revelation, a completed Bible, there's no need for further revelation. So we proclaim what's been received and we act authoritatively as the church's shepherds. Now, my point is, is that all five of these features of this present age, they, they, they're, they're incomplete. They're, there's no completion to them. We're really being propelled forward. We're being propelled heavenward. I think those five features are best condensed in Paul's statement in Colossians 3.1. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So, why is this information important to you? Why not just be, as the old joke goes, pan-millennialist that it'll all pan out in the end? Why not? Because Scripture calls us to apply our knowledge of the times very directly to life in this present age, that even as we're seeking the things above, we're driven to be excellent in the things below. Now, I'd like to close out our time this evening in 2 Peter chapter 3, if you would turn back a few pages with me, to 2 Peter 3. We visited this text last time, but I promised four applications to what we've learned tonight. And 2 Peter 3 delivers gloriously to us. Peter's giving information regarding the age to come, which as I've shown tonight includes the introduction and intermediate time of Christ's kingdom on earth. Specifically, Peter's addressing the transition from the end of the millennial kingdom to the beginning of the final state. 2 Peter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be found out. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens burning will be destroyed and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let me give you four challenges that Peter makes in light of looking for these things. Verse 14 says we're looking for them. Four challenges. The first challenge is live in holiness. Live in holiness. Verse 11 says, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct, in holiness? What sort? This is an interesting, this is a, this is a question. It's a compound word that literally means, what country did you come from? Where are you from? Where, where do you originate? I think it's interesting that Peter, rather than focusing on where we're going, asks the question, where did you come from? What's your origin? The Apostle John says where you're from. John 1, 1, 12 and 13, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Where did you come from? You were born of God, and by God, to be a child of God, you are from God, by his grace. So since you are from God, Peter's challenge is to holiness. The common Greek word translated holiness uh, related to the word translated saint. You're set apart. You're different. You're not like the world around you. Isn't that interesting? In light of what's coming and in light of where you came from, here's how you act now. I've observed, based on decades of gospel ministry, that sometimes Christians don't even know how worldly they really are. 
And so thinking and meditating on holiness in light of where we are now, where we're from, and what's going to happen, it gives a sense of transience. You're thinking about where did I come from and where am I going? That says I'm traveling. I'm a sojourner. I'm just passing through. The second challenge that Peter gives we'll call live in godliness. Live in godliness. Verse 11 continues, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? This is a form of one of the main Greek words for worship, that you're living lives of of piety and worshiping God, that considering where you're from and where you're going, what's coming later, we're dependent, we're weak, we're reliant, little tiny people who cling to God in worship. I mean, think about this for a minute. Peter has just talked about the creation as we know it being melted down. And we panic over a pothole. We just panic over, oh no, this might... But imagine watching the ground beneath you melt into nothing. The sky going away. So what does this tell us? That we're dependent, weak, reliant, little people. And the safest place we can be is on our face before God. If I could put it this way, a life not characterized by worship is a wasted life. A life that doesn't think about what's to come. Our worship is driven by what's coming. Peter gives a third challenge. Live in waiting. Live in waiting. Verse 12 says that we're looking for or waiting for the coming day of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians or 1 Thessalonians rather 1 verse 10 that the Christian is to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Little note here. The wrath to come is not speaking of the wrath of God against individual sinners. That's already been accomplished at the cross. Paul is speaking of the inauguration of the coming kingdom when Christ returns and since you're in Christ He's the one who rescues you from the wrath that's going to be poured out on the earth during the Great Tribulation. And when he does return, by the way, Paul was premillennial. We just described tribulation, judgment, kingdom. But this waiting is not just a passive hanging around. It's not just biding your time. It's not just kind of marking time until something happens. Looking for. This is a word that speaks of expectancy of eagerness of looking forward to something it has connotations of thinking about something in other words your your waiting is accomplished by thinking about the glories that are to come hearing about the glories that are to come reading about the glories that are to come studying about the glories that are to come this is why we're doing a series on the millennium to accomplish that task of waiting with expectancy I just think it's so sad when a Christian has so little knowledge of the things that are to come that the best they can offer is, well, I'm going to a better place. We have a theology that is rich and deep and you should be able to talk for hours about the things that are to come. That we're to be eager, we're thinking on this age. There's a fourth challenge. Live in prayer. Live in prayer. Verse 12 has an interesting little phrase looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. It's a, it's a word that means just what it sounds like, to hurry something along. It's the idea of if you, you ever have a, like a two-and-a-half-year-old, you're trying to get from point A to point B, and he's walking, and two-and-a-half-year-olds walk like they're drunk. They're just kind of all over the place, right? And so what do you do? You come along and you get, get your hand on his little rear end and you push him. You hasten him. You hurry him. If you're really in a hurry, you just pick him up and put him there. That's what this is, hastening. Now, hang on a minute. Hasn't God in his sovereignty already fixed the day and the hour of the return of Christ in the coming age to come? Yes, he has. But what's the means by which that will be accomplished? What's the means by which the kingdom will be hastened forward, hurried forward? The means by which God's plan will be consummated is prayer. This is easily proven. Jesus commanded us to pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The last words of Jesus Christ recorded in scripture, Revelation twenty two twenty. 20, yes, I am coming quickly. 
And the Apostle John closes our Bible with the prayer of agreement, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Pray for the coming of the Lord to happen sooner, because in His providence He uses your prayers to hasten. Professor Joseph Mead, this genius lecturer at Christ College of the University of Cambridge, fascinated by the study of end times, even setting dates. He's only 400 years off so far. It's not too bad. And he made an important contribution which still reverberates in our church today and in many churches. All of his peers, every influential Bible scholar in his day, followed in the footsteps of the major reformers in holding to amillennialism. But he broke away from nearly all of his peers in the theological world and he wrote a book called The Key to Revelation. It was a call to return to the historic church's belief in premillennialism. He called for a return to a literal interpretation of Scripture and to not interpret the Old Testament differently than you did the New Testament, to read the text of Scripture at face value. He rebuked the church reformers for following blindly, as he would say, Augustine's theology, rather than allowing Scripture to speak for itself. After his death in 1639, there was a re-release of the key to Revelation And it was reprinted with a new preface by William Twiss. He was the chairman of the Westminster Assembly. This is huge. And Twiss repudiated Augustine for leading the church to give up the doctrine of Christ's kingdom on earth. And he praised Mead for leading the charge in the late Reformation era to recover this ancient, historic, biblical doctrine. One guy who was deeply impacted by Mead was somebody you may know, Isaac Newton. The genius scientist, he said Mead was the greatest influence on understanding Bible prophecy of his day. Well, at this point, especially with the release of the the key to Revelation after Mead's death, there was a cascade of more and more men returning to a literal interpretation of Scripture, which gives the tremendous story of a glorious millennium with Christ reigning on earth. Even some Puritans broke away. Uh, Increased Mather and Cotton Mather, they openly proclaimed a future literal reign of Christ on earth, including the conversion of Israel as a nation. And premillennialism continues in strength with Plymouth Brethren churches, Messianic Jewish churches, Bible churches, many Baptist churches. Part of my drive, part of my hope is that Grace Bible Church, that we would be a part of the great call from Paul to the church in 1 Timothy 3.15, that we would be a pillar and a support and a foundation of the truth simply by eating it and drinking it and believing it with all of our hearts to be a carrier of the truth. Because if you're a carrier of this truth, you know what it leads to? It leads to lives of holiness, godliness, waiting, and prayer. This leads you to godliness now because you know where you came from and you know where you're going. That puts you on very solid ground, doesn't it? It does for me. I trust it does for you as well. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for how glorious it is. We stand on a solid rock, the rock of Christ, the rock of your word. We know from whence we have come and we know what is coming next. And so we may in spiritual terms, relax. We may enjoy our daily lives today, lives lived in holiness and godliness and waiting in prayer because we have a smile on our face. We know what is to come. We know that there will be a day, there will be a moment in time when we see Christ. And what a glorious promise we have from Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 that once we see Christ, we will always be with Him. We will never be separated from Him ever, ever, ever. Lord, I pray for this body of believers that as we drive these truths deeply into our own hearts that we have tremendous confidence that while our world is degrading day by day, You will take us out of this world either by means of the mercy of our own deaths or by means of the rapture of the church, should we live that long? And that you will then pour out your judgment and your wrath upon this earth, tribulation followed by judgment, and then Christ 
and all the resurrected saints of the church age will return with him. He will judge those who are still here rebelling against him. He will set up his kingdom and the resurrected saints of this age will rule with him over an age in which even more people come to faith in Christ. This glorious, gracious, intermediate age that we would call millennium. Let us live today in light of tomorrow. We pray these things in Christ's name and for our King's glory. Amen.